Hello, this is episode 11 of Spurbs Herbs. And, you know, I, I do these podcasts. I, I know my herbs. Uh, I've, I know my Chinese herbs quite well. Uh, doing a lot with those. I know a lot about Western herbs. And yet I also know there's a lot I don't know. And today's herb is one of those herbs that I've never explored before. I'm really excited about it. And, you know, after doing all the research and looking at this, I think my practice may, may be changed forever. This is fantastic. So this is episode 11, Devil's Claw. Let's get going. So Devil's Claw is... Harpagio phytum procumbus radix. So that's the root of the Harpago phytum procumbus plant. Uh, so I am, as always, your presenter, Dr. Greg Sperber. So let's get started. So today we are sponsored by myself. If you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board continuing education units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, NCCAOM, professional development activities at a reasonable cost. Check out www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org for more information. Additionally, I have a new book coming out called Dragons in the Medicine Cabinet, Chinese Herbal Medicines Everyone Should Have at Home. And if you're interested in getting some information on this book, please send me an email at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. Thank you. So let's get into today's topic. I, you know, I was preparing this episode over the last week, and uh, so this is a Saturday that I'm giving it on, and Thursday was Earth Day for 2021. And it's, it's interesting that it, it happened at this time because more than most herbs I've discussed so far, there's a lot of literature about the economic environmental ramifications of this herb. There were uh, actual scientific papers, several of them, written about this, this sort of aspect. And so it, it kind of it blends in with Earth Day. And so I'm like, okay, what am I going to talk about? And I said, this perfect Earth Day is, is kind of going right. It helps me focus on this sort of stuff. So I think this the reason why this herb in particular is it has all these environmental ramifications discussed and, and economic ramifications is because there's not a strong base of cultivation. There's some. Um, but the vast majority of this herb is wild harvested. It is wild harvested in a relatively poor area of the world. And it, it also takes four years for a tuber to reach harvest potential. So it, you're, you're not harvesting, you're not cultivating this, and it takes a long time for it to actually do that. And on top of all this, it has the potential for over harvesting as well so that you can actually disturb how much of this is out in the, in the environment and, and have huge impacts on its ability to be harvested in the future. So this all, I think, plays really well into to Earth Day. So let's talk some more about this. 
Sustainability is a large concern in the trade of herbs in general, with many herbs being over-harvested at this point in time. And this, is, of course, is exacerbated with the threat of climate change. Have we seen a lot of changes uh, with, with herbs at this point due to climate change? I haven't seen any good evidence of that at this point, though everyone's kind of preparing for it would be the best way I would say it. And this is generally a concern with herbs that cannot be cultivated and are wild harvested, such as Devil's Claw, our herb for, to, for today. One of the most important arbiters of endangered species is the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, which is CITES, C-I-T-E-S. And I, I've heard of both CITES and CITES, so uh, either way I think is fine. Uh, so the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, and you hear about this all the time in, when you're talking about sustainability of herbs. And when I say herbs in this context, I mean the, the broader sense in, in Chinese herbs, at least, we also include a lot of animal species as well as plant species in, in our materia medica, our, our medical materials. And so that's, this includes both plants and animals, the, the CITES does. There was an attempt to add Devil's Claw to sites, but it has been withdrawn. And, and it was due uh, for several reasons. First of all, to sustainability efforts, increased cultivation, uh, slightly declining demand um, over the last 10 years or so. I, in addition, there has been a lot of laws put into place. We'll talk about some of those to help protect this. And also because the, co the, the countries involved with the harvesting of Devil's Claw were concerned that it would have a huge economic impact. And that is the other side of this issue, which is economics. So Stuart and Cole says harvesting Devil's Claw has improved income levels in marginalized communities. That's a huge concern. If suddenly you're going to say, well, you can't do that anymore, or we need to restrict this, then how do some of these communities maintain uh, some of the gains that they've had due to to the wild harvesting of, of this or other herbs. And so there's always this sort of balance that we try to do. In response to these competing concerns, Namibia, from where the most exports originally, we're, we're going to find out that about 90% of Devil's Claw actually comes from Namibia, starting in 2010 has protected this herb. There's now a Devil's Claw resource management policy which is enforced by the Ministry of Environment and Tourism. Permits are required for all stages of Devil's Claw production, with the wild harvesting and sell of Devil's Claw permitted only between March 1st and October 31st. So basically, there's a Devil's Claw season. Additionally, traders and exporters are required to pass a test and be registered. So this is, this is quite a policy to protect this herb. Similar situations are present in Botswana, South Africa, and Zambia. Angola does not have these protections, however. While it may appear Devil's Claw is on the road to sustainability, for many medicinal herbs, this is not the case. And herbalists and enthusiasts should be aware of the impact our use has on these species. This is of particular concern with many, if not most, animal products used especially in Chinese herbology. As herbalists... I believe we have a duty to heal our patients, but not at the expense of the earth. My experience is that even endangered species are generally easy to obtain. Where there is demand, there will be supply. 
Our role is to make sure that there is no demand for these endangered species. Several of the herbs I learned in school are now considered unsustainable, and it is on me to know and understand this as an herbalist. Over 5,000 species of animals and 29,000 species of plants are protected by CIDs. There are three appendices to the sites which list these species. Appendix one, and, and these are important to know because you will say, they will say that species is appendix one or that species is appendix two. So you need to know what these mean when we're looking at the sustainability in sites. Appendix one lists about 1,200 species which are threatened with extinction and trade is illegal except for exceptional licensed circumstances. Uh, if there's, you know, that's generally in the research category, I, I guess there's other exceptional circumstances, but I am not aware of many of them. However, captain bred animals or cultivated plants of these species are considered to be appendix two specimens. So if you have an, an appendix one specimen that was captive bred or cultivated plant, then instead of being considered appendix one, those individual plants or animals are considered appendix two. So appendix two contains about 21,000 species which are not considered to be threatened with extinction, but may become so without strict regulation. So these are the ones that we're concerned about. And there are restrictions often. They're not, not as uh, onerous as uh, Appendix 1. I don't know if onerous is the right word as strict. I think is a better word than onerous than Appendix 1. But we do need to be aware of these Appendix 2 uh, species and make sure that we're, we're, we're only using them when we need to, when it's required, even though there's no strong protections around them. Finally, Appendix 3 includes about 170 species that have been requested by a member country. These may be locally threatened, but are not globally threatened. So in other words, you know, a certain um, species might be in uh, certain parts of the world might be endangered, but not globally, so in the, in the world. So uh, those member countries is asked, let's put this in Appendix 3 so that we can help regulate that within our borders. The European Union, instead of using these three appendices, uses Annex A, B, C, and D. So we're going to find out what those mean in just a second. Appendic, uh, annexes A, B, and C are stricter versions of appendices 1, 2, and 3 and contain more species protected under EU legislation, European Union legislation. So the annexes are stronger and more and have more listed than the appendices. So uh, Annex A is, is stricter and has more species than uh, the Appendix 1. Annex B has more than Appendix 2 and C3, more than 3. The, then they add on Annex D, which is a monitoring list. This is a list of species that we need to keep an eye on and make sure we're doing okay. So that is the annexes A, B, C, and D are used in the European Union, while the rest of the world sticks basically with appendices 1, 2, and 3. Lists of species on these lists are available by using a web search. These lists do change, so looking at the most recent is important. Many animals and several commonly used herbs in Chinese medicine are present on these lists. And I'm going to give an example in just a minute. Again, as professionals, we should be aware of these species. In addition, we should know potential and useful alternatives. For example, American ginseng Panax quinquifolium, Xiangshen, and ginseng Panax ginseng renshen, 
are both Appendix 2 herbs. So they're not uh, threatened extinction yet, but they are getting closer to that. And both of those, I, I, as my understanding, I know that um, Renshen is, I'm not sure about Xiangshan, are, are uh, wild harvested. So that explains a lot too. Plus they take long, long time for them to become specimens that we would use in herbology so all of those dings that we were talking a little bit at the beginning with devil's claw is the same thing with ginsengs uh, these are very important herbs in chinese medicine but they can take many many years to reach maturity a possible substitute for some uses may be ashwagandha with ania somnifera and and i'll be honest with you I didn't realize this until I did a Spurbs Herbs episode on ashwagandha, which is available at, um, as a podcast for free at SpurbsHerbs.com. Uh, so ashwagandha is practically a weed, grows very easily and quickly, can be harvested within a year, while ginseng, I mean, the, the longer, the more valued it is. And, and I've seen specimens that I've been told are decades, have been growing for decades before being harvested. So very different between ashwagandha and, and renshin. It's definitely not a perfect substitution. Ashwagandha is better at calming the mind, relieving arthritis and building sexual energy. Renshin is better for low energy uh, caused by digestive weakness. We call that spleen chi deficiency. So much better for that than ashwagandha would be. So that is, you know, you can't use ashwagandha exactly like you can use renshin, but if there's things that we can use ashwagandha for instead of renshin, then we can reduce our demand of renshin and hopefully help its sustainability. And that's a good example of this, especially since it's appendix, appendix two as opposed to one, we have opportunities to help protect it that we may not have for appendix one. So that is sustainability. Uh, can't even say it. sustainability. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to chime in, send me an email, whatever you'd like. Right, so let's get into Devil's Claw. That was our little something different for this episode. Let's talk about our herb of the episode, Devil's Claw. Uh, I, you know, we're going to show some pictures of it. Uh, I think we're going to see a dried. Uh, actually, we had it at the very beginning. Uh, a look at the dried devil's claw and, and I've seen pictures of it that it really does look like a claw from something otherworldly. So it, I think it's very aptly <laughs> named. So devil's claw is usually this species Harpagio phytum uh, uh, procumbens or Harpago phytum procumbens. My Latin is a lot worse than my English and Chinese and Spanish and I'm not say much about my Spanish or Chinese. So um, Harpago or Harpago, uh, Harpago, Phytum procumbens. Although Harpago Phytum Zahari is a common and essentially similar substitute. So those are the two big species under this genus of Harpago Phytum. And uh, they're, they're basically interchangeable. When you look at the chemistry between the two of them, they have very similar uh, chemistry. We're going to see that, and uh, there was a study that, that kind of showed that. And in looking over the differences between the two, I saw that there were, Zahari had one chemical that was different from procumbens, but not, that chemical was not mentioned anywhere else in any of the medical literature, so I don't think it's a... Uh, 
a medically useful chemical, but that was the only thing that I really saw different. Visually, they're a little bit different. Zahari can be a little bit darker than procumbens, uh, but very similar otherwise. Uh, and both are considered very bitter. Uh, that's one of the words that keeps coming up in these, in these, uh, in this herb. So harpagophytum stems from the Greek words harpagos, meaning grappling hook, and phyton, meaning plant. And that really makes a lot of sense when you look um, at the the quote unquote claws of this of this fruit. And that's really the stems. It looks like a grappling hook. Procumbens comes from the Latin word meaning prostrate, prostate, prostrate or lying down. Zeheri refers to the German botanist Carl Ludwig Philipp Zeher, 1799, who lived from 1799 to 1858, who had worked in southern Africa. So that was uh, a payback for them. They're a good research. Comes from the family Petalaceae, and that is where the sesame seeds come from. This is the sesame family. So this is actually related to sesame seeds, which I think is really interesting. The medicinal part is the tuber or root slash root. What makes this a little bit different is there is a central tap root that uh, it grows with devil's claw. And then there are secondary tubers or roots that grow out from that tap root. So when you're wild harvesting, it's I, I, there's a video that will actually be up eventually when this gets posted to the Spur Observes, where they show them digging around that central tap root and then cutting off the secondary tubers and keeping that tap root in place. And that does two things. Number one, tap root has a lot less of the medicinal chemicals that we think are the active ingredients for this. So it's not very useful medicinally. The other thing is by keeping that central tap root there, you're essentially maintaining the plant. So that's part of the sustainability aspect of this. So, uh, so we want to keep that central tap root going and we take the secondary roots or tubers and that is the medicinal herb that we look at. So we don't even deal with the devil's claw. You know, that's the devil's claw plant, but we're just looking at the root of it. So we, we leave the claw part completely around, alone. So there are lots of other names. I don't even know how I could even start to pronounce this. This is the actual name of it in the Kojin language. It's slash slash X apostrophe A-A-T-A-T-A-B-A. -A -A -A. Now those slash slashes apparently represent the lateral click in some Kojin languages. So it's I think it's something like Xataba. Xataba. I, I don't know. That's as close as I could even possibly get to with that as well. Another name in Africa is, again, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce it have no idea if I'm even in the ballpark. Tlo Taxaba. So it's Tlo Taxaba. Uh, it's T L O U T A X A B A. So that's another African name for this. And then there's another one as well, which is phonetically very similar to the Dutch word for this. The what Dutch word of this is um, Duvelsklaw. So again, it translates as Devil's Claw. Um, Duvel's claw, I guess, would be my best bet. Again, I don't speak uh, Dutch, so and so the the other uh, the uh, the other African is uh, name for this is very similar. And I'm, I'm assuming these are different tribes or different peoples in the area. So D U I W E L S 
C K, excuse me, K L O U, Duvels Klau, Klau, something along those. So very close to the Dutch. German, it's um, Tufels Kral. Uh, again, I don't speak German. It's also in English, grapple plant or wood spider. And there is another Latinate name for this, Uncaria procumbens. You won't really see that. Where Uncaria procumbens comes from is before it was called Harpagio phytum. A different taxonomist had put this into the genus of Uncaria. Uh, further studies have determined it is not part of that genus, but sometimes it's still called Uncaria procumbens. So that's the final name that I have for this. I'm sure there's other names out there. Generally, the daily dose of this herb is 1.5 to 4.5 grams per day. And it was first described in the West in 1822 by William John Birchall in his book, Travels in the Interior of Southern Africa. On our next page, we have a picture of the devil's claw and it's it's actually an interesting looking plant it has very long sort of um i'm going to call them vines uh, i'm not using technical language here um that kind of radiate out from a central place and uh, there's uh, a bunch of vines you know going in a, in a group going in one direction and there's some others going in other directions it has sort of a reddish purple flower bell-shaped flower on a few of these limbs, you can see um, the the fresh sort of uh, you know I'm calling them the devil's claws the the they're actually the the place where the fruits grow out of the stems that the fruits grow out of, and you can see some of those. And of course, none of this that we're seeing in this picture is a is medicinal part at all in this herb for this herb. Devil's Claw is indigenous to deciduous forests and arid savanna areas of southern Africa and Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, and Angola, and to a lesser extent in Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique. More than 90% of the global supply of Devil's Claw root comes from wild collection in Namibia, with smaller amounts from Botswana, Angola, and Zambia. I believe this, this statistic came from something written in 2005, 2006. So this may have changed. I hope it has. I hope we're, we're using more cultivated uh, plants rather than 90% wild uh, harvesting from Namibia. Um, I couldn't find anything that was particularly, was, was substantially more recent than this. But that uh, at that point, 2005, which sounds like a long time ago, but probably wasn't, um, was 90% of the global supply was wild collection from Namibia. Here's the issue. Roots need to be at least four years old be before they are ready to harvest. These were traditionally used by the San. Again, don't know the correct pronunciations, S-A-N, San, San, and Khoikhoi peoples of Southern Africa. The tuber has been used in those traditional uses as a laxative, as an anti-arthritic, so to help arthritis, to treat blood conditions. It did get more specific than that. It just said to treat blood conditions, headache, fever, indigestion, postpartum pain, and malaria. So there's lots of malaria, especially in sub-Saharan uh, Africa. So that's an 
this could be a useful herb for that potentially. Topically, an ointment containing devil's claws applied to treat boils, sprains, sores, and to aid childbirth by facilitating labor. And and some some studies have shown, at least in animals, that it 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 can be effective for that. It's also used to treat diabetes. These are all traditional uses. Also used to treat diabetes, gout, tuberculosis, hypertension, menstrual complaints, ulcers, snake bites, low back pain, and burn and wound healing. And it's also used as a mouthwash for bleeding gums. So this has a lot of traditional uses. We're going to see when we use it as an herb, it's really boiled down to just a couple. Um, but it's good to know, it's interesting to know that these were all very traditional uses. Have a picture here, and this is the medicinal part of the, the, the plant. And what happens is you get the tuber. The tuber, um, when you look at it, it looks sort of like a more rounded sort of, um, you know, a, um, yam or, or sweet potato sort of uh, plant. And what they will do is they'll take slices off of this. The slices, they appear to be, I've only seen videos of this, so I don't know measurements, but they appear, slices appear to be like uh, half an inch to an inch thick. And that's what they will dry. And that's the medicinal. And then they'll take those and do whatever they're going to do to processing that uh, going forward. And here we have a picture of some of this dried sliced root. And it's, uh, it, it tends to be quite yellow and has, uh, is quite convoluted uh, uh, around it. And uh, the inside is a little bit more brown, I think, than the outside of it. So there's that. Preparations for this herb include decoction. So that's, that's generally how it's used traditionally often is as a decoction or as a tea. So just steeping it as a tea. And when I, when I, when I, read how to make the tea it sounded more like a very prolonged decoction it's like you know put pour hot water boiling water over it and let it sit there for hours so um i don't know if there's much of a difference between prep tea preparation and decoction uh, and where those two uh, demarcate but that's how it's traditionally used a lot as an ointment and uh, as an ointment you know it can be mixed with with fats and what have you but also you can just cut the tumor and and the fresh tuber, uh, the fresh root, and actually put um, put it on as an ointment, just straight, and it can be prepared as a mouthwash. Currently in the West, it's available raw as a powdered extract, a tincture, and in pill and capsule form. So if you're looking to do that, I have a picture of uh, capsules of it. Uh, uh, that is, it's not really the picture of the capsule. It's just a bottle that says Devil's Claw on it. After researching this in my usual places, including a Google search, I found only one reference to devil's claw from a Chinese medical point of view. It states that it is bitter and cool, and that makes a lot of sense. All the literature just describes it as being quite bitter. Bitter and cool enters the spleen and stomach and tonifies qi. Looking at its traditional uses, it appears it regulates qi and blood as well. So those are um, that would be sort of my... Chinese medical approach to this. It may also treat heat toxin and express sores because it does help with boils and things along those lines. So my overall Chinese medical actions for this is that it's better, bitter and cool, uh, enters the spleen and stomach channels, tonifies qi, regulates qi and blood, 
and may also treat heat toxin and express sores. So that would be sort of where I'd put the Chinese medical actions here. And that uh, makes sense to me. Let's talk about the science. This has been around for a while. This is a, a relatively early herb. So there's uh, in, in uh, well, I you know it's it's interesting. It's it's relatively late on the European side of things, but it's been used for centuries or millennia in in Africa. So it's been around for a long time. It's one of the first herbs that was I think extensively researched in the West. So that's useful. Lots of research on that. So we're going to go into a little bit of the the history of the science, and then we're going to get into the actual science itself. This herb has been used for quite a while in Europe. First promoted by a German soldier turned farmer in Namibia, Gultrich Hubertus Maynert, who lived from 1880 to 1967. He had a nice long life of 87 years. He sent samples to German botanists, including one he met as a prisoner of war internment, as a, at a prisoner of war internment camp in South Africa. In the late 1950s, uh, into the early 1960s, papers were published from these samples showing antiarthritic action in rats. In 1981, a monograph was published on it in the second edition of the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, indicating it was useful for rheumatism, arthritis, gout, myalgia. Uh, so rheumatism often means low back pain. That's, you know, it's like kind of the low back pain of growing older. Arthritis, gout, myalgia means muscular pain. Um, fibromyalgia, that's the condition we currently, you know, I, it was, um, back then it was called fibrositis, uh, but now it's called fibromyalgia. Lumbago means low back pain. And pleurodynia, which is a sudden occurrence of stabbing chest or abdominal pain. That's pleurodynia. So that's all interesting. The, the German Commission E authority developed a monograph in 1989. So I want to talk about this German Commission E authority because it's it's a really interesting authority. We hear about it a lot in, in herbology, especially when you look at Western herbs. And so us understanding what this Commission E uh, means is probably a little bit useful for us. So the German Commission E is a scientific advisory board of the Federal Institute for Drugs and Medical Devices in Germany. It was founded in 1978, and the commission gives scientific expertise for the approval of substances and products previously used in traditional folk and herbal medicine. The commission became known beyond Germany in the 1990s for compiling and publishing 380 monographs evaluating the safety and efficacy of herbs for licensed, licensed medicinal medical prescribing in Germany. The monographs were published between 1984 and 1994. So they have not been updated since. So the, the, latest, the, the latest of these is 1994. As we see here, they did a monograph on Devil's Claw in 1989. And the reason why the commission is important is because it was considered fairly uh, authoritarian at that time. You couldn't get approved to, to sell these herbs without the commission kind of saying it's okay. That's my understanding of how this worked in, in Germany. And so getting that stamp of approval is a pretty major thing in, in herbology. And so they've become kind of authoritative, uh, you know, uh, go-tos for various herbs. <coughs> so 
that's why it still holds, even though they're over 25 years old, it still holds, and there's been a lot of research since then, still holds a lot of sway in, the, in Western herbology, and it has a lot of useful information. So Devil's Claw 1989 monograph says it was useful for loss of appetite, dyspepsia, which means, you know, uh, gastrointestinal complaints or pain, and as supportive therapy of degenerative disorders of the locomotor system. So locomotor means, you know, movement system. So that can include arthritis and low back pain and things along those lines. And it, and it does. It's often been interpreted, interpreted in that way. Currently, the European Union says Devil's Claw may be labeled and marketed for relief of minor articular pain and relief of mild digestive disorders such as bloating and flatulence and where there is temporary loss of appetite. In Canada, it allows the following claim statements. Traditionally used in herbal medicine as a bitter to help stimulate appetite. Traditionally used in herbal medicine to help relieve digestive disturbances such as dyspepsia. Used in herbal medicine to help relieve joint pain associated with osteoarthritis. So there we go. Those are sort of where we're going to focus a lot of our attention on osteoarthritis, on, on low back pain, on some of the, the, the claims for gastrointestinal things. Now, I just want to say, I said in Chinese medicine that this is probably a cold herb, but it, generally in Chinese medicine, we don't see cold herbs stimulating appetite. And so I, I, I'm not sure it's a cold herb. I think it might be more along the lines of, of neutral to warmish, I think, to get some of these, the, to get at some of these actual effects. So keep that in mind, um, kind of backtracking a little bit, but I think it's important as I'm looking at this to kind of go, eh, just because this one site said it was cool, um, I'm kind of thinking it's a little bit warmer than cool. So just my opinion. So let's look at low back pain, the claims for treating low back pain. It's a common use of devil's claw, and there are lots of studies to look at this. A 2014 Cochrane Review. Now, if you're not familiar with Cochrane Reviews, um, in my mind, they're, they're considered, I, I think of them as some of the highest level of reviews we have. Cochrane, to be a Cochrane Review, you have to be a, a systematic review of randomly controlled trials. They're very regulated in how you do a Cochrane Review. They're in one particular database. There's a lot of reviews in there. There's a lot more that need to be done. Um, but it's, it's, I think, very high-level evidence for whether or not something works. And they looked at various herbal medicines for low back pain. So there was a Cochrane review that looked at various herbs. And they determined that there's low or very low quality evidence supporting the use of, of Harbogophytum uh, procumbus in low back pain to reduce pain. Now, I want to parse that out because I want to be very exact to what I'm saying. What they said was there is evidence supporting the use of devil's claw and low back pain. There was evidence. It was a positive, to a certain extent, review. What they were saying was the quality supporting that was low or very low quality. So basically what they're saying is, well, it looks like there's some evidence to show that this can be helpful in low back pain, we need to do higher quality and better quality studies to really figure out if that's the case or not. So I kind of consider that to be a lukewarm positive review. Um, it, it, it's not super strong, but at least it didn't say it didn't work. And so, but we need more research on whether it helps with low back pain.
WebMD, which is, I think, a, a, not a bad source for, for general information on herbs, and, and they said it seems to work about as well as other NSAIDs. There, was some, there were some small studies that, that suggested that. So an NSAID is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. These are your aspirin is an NSAID and ibuprofen, and, and I love flurbuprofen is one of my favorite names for a, a drug. I, I just flurby, I don't know why ibuprofen, um, anything with ends with a profen is going to be an NSAID. The only thing that's not an NSAID that we would might consider that is acetaminophen, um, which or Tylenol, which is not considered an NSAID. It has a different mechanism of action than NSAIDs. So I, this is the part that I think is very interesting and started to get my mind turning around how I could use Devil's Claw in my practice. And I'll summarize that at the end. Osteoarthritis, a review of the use of Devil's Claw in osteoarthritis found poor quality of trials, making it difficult to answer if it works and whether it is safe. So that's, you know, even a really good systematic review that's very positive is probably going to say, but more research needs to be done. I've, I don't think I've ever read a systematic review uh, that didn't say that. And, and systematic reviews are kind of the pinnacle of evidence. We want systematic reviews because they, they look at a whole bunch of different trials and tries to determine whether the trials are done well and what are the conclusions we can do. But it did state, this particular review, which said it was poor quality of the trials, it did state that the higher quality studies suggested effectiveness in treating pain and osteoarthritis. So that is a, at least a, a positive. That was, you know, 2006, so 15 years ago. So uh, there have been other trials since then, and they've been relatively positive. I just, you know, my glance at them was they weren't super high quality, so I don't know if we've improved the quality of these trials. Um, but, you know, that's the nature of, of research and science is that there could always be a better done trial. Going back to WebMD, they says it's possibly effective for osteoarthritis, either alone or in combination with NSAIDs. So the reason why I kind of go back to WebMD is because they do, they say possibly effective and then um, no evidence to support effectiveness. And we're going to see what those are in the next slide. So I like the fact that they at least attempt to give an opinion on whether they think it's effective or not. And, and it's, I think it's relatively authoritative in, the, in that regard. So it says it's possibly effective for low back pain and possibly effective for osteoarthritis. And then we look at other conditions. And this list below are conditions that Devil's Claw has been reported to aid. However, WebMD currently believes there is insufficient evidence, insufficient evidence to support its use in these things. So that includes rheumatoid arthritis. So they're specific. Good for osteoarthritis, maybe not good for rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe not good. They're not saying it doesn't work for these conditions. What they're saying is there's not there's insufficient evidence to support it. And I gotta say, I'm looking over all these. I did a big, uh, a big research, you know, a big search on uh, Devil's Claw, and I didn't see a lot of support for these things either. So I just don't. It doesn't mean they don't work in these things. It just means there's no evidence to support them. So rheumatoid arthritis, atherosclerosis. So that's that's a contributor to congestion, uh, cardiac cardiovascular disease, um, pleuritic chest pain. So this is chest pain of the pleuris. Uh, pleurises, um, which are the uh, sacs that the, the lungs kind of uh, sit in. So it's not like uh, chest pain from a cardiac condition. It's, it's more of a physical sort of pain. Fibromyalgia, 
gout, high cholesterol, loss of appetite, muscle pain, topical wound healing, migraine, indigestion, fever, dysmenorrhea, difficulties during childbirth, tendonitis or inflammation of the tendons, allergies, and kidney and bladder disease. So some of these are interesting because if you look at loss of appetite, you look at indigestion, these are kind of traditional uses, very common traditional uses. And actually, um, Canada said it's perfectly, it, it's helpful for those things. And so it's interesting that some states are saying yes, and others are saying there's not enough. This isn't a state, obviously, but our country. Um, but it's, it's interesting that some are, even without a ton of evidence, are actually supportive of its use. Another study in 2012 looked at the contents of both uh, H. percumbens and H. zahari, so both of the two species we were talking about, and determined there was some evidence, though mostly in vitro, to support the following effects. Anti-inflammatory, so that means it, it cuts down inflammation, and we're going to talk about how it probably does that. Analgesia, so it helps with pain. Antioxidant, anti-diabetic, antimicrobial, so that's interesting. It helps uh, against uh, various bugs, so whether those are bacteria or viral or what have you. Antimalarial, anti-cancer cardiovascular, central nervous system, and uterotonic effects. So it helps the uterus. In other words, that could be helpful during childbirth and things along those lines. So they determined there was some evidence towards those. So that's, you know, we're always going to see this. We're always going to see some saying yes, some say no. Um, but the, the issue with this is some evidence, though mostly in vitro. So that means not in people. So they were doing lab work or they were looking at studies that did lab work. So all these things might be true, but they have not been shown to be true uh, primarily in humans. So we have to take this with a grain of salt, but at least it's pointing us in a direction and it's kind of interesting in that regard. So how does it do some of this stuff? There was one in vitro study. Again, in vitro is not as good as in vivo, but in vitro um, is... Uh, can be useful it's in the, in the laboratory indicates anti-inflammatory and analgesic effects are probably due to cox2 inhibition and inducible nitric oxide synthase messenger rna expression okay let me explain what that all means so cox2 inhibition cox is cyclooxygenase it's it's abbreviated cox and this is interesting because when we were talking about all those NSAIDs earlier, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen and etc the way they help pain and anti and are anti-inflammatory is through COX-2 inhibition. So it makes sense if this has a similar sort of effect that it will also have its effect through COX-2 inhibition. And then it also inhibits this nitric oxide synthase mRNA expression. So what that means, nitric oxide synthase will produce nitric oxide, which can contribute to pain uh, you know, the, to the sensation of pain. And so this is decreasing its expression from DNA into mRNA. And if you decrease this mRNA, then you decrease the actual production of this, this enzyme. Synthase is an enzyme that creates something. That's what it means. Ace means enzyme and synth means to create. So an enzyme that creates uh, inducible nitric oxide. So those are some of the mechanisms is further supported by a, a, a 2012 in vitro study, uh, which added 
the inhibition of tumor necrosis factor alpha. So this is another very interesting uh, sort of chemical. Tumor necrosis factor alpha is a cytokine, which is a small protein used by the immune system for cell signaling. If macrophages, macrophages are um, important, they're, they're white blood cells, they're a type of white blood cells, and they're very important during injury and things along those lines. Do, if a macrophage, an infection, if a, a macrophage detects an infection, they release tumor necrosis factor to alert other immune system cells as part of an inflammatory response. In other words, if you inhibit tumor necrosis factor alpha, then you are inhibiting the inflammatory response of the body. So you're being anti-inflammatory, you're decreasing inflammation. So that is a positive in this, this whole thing. So those are the mechanisms that we think this herb might work with. And while we're saying all these things, there, you know, there are many chemicals that might help and aid this, but there's one in particular that we're about to talk about that is has been primarily researched and we think is 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 probably uh, amongst the most important of the chemicals in this in this herb. So let's talk about the contents. So what's sort of unique about this herb is they have several iridoid glycosides. So I'm going to talk about what an iridoid glycoside is in just a minute. But several of them are present, including the most studied. So this is the, the chemical that we're, 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 we spend most of our time looking at, and it's called harpagoside. So it takes the name of harpagophyatum. So harpagoside, um, that's the chemical harpagoside, as well as harpa, harpagide, procumbide, procumbicide, 8-OP cumeroil harpagide and 6-OP cumeroil procumbide. So those are all very, uh, those are all iridoid glycosides that we think have action, some positive actions, especially the harpagoside uh, in the contents. There are lots of other constituents, of course, including harpagoquinones. So quinones are something we'll see in a lot of, of herbs. Uh, in this case, harpagoquinone, I didn't see many studies supporting that this was an active ingredient here. It may or may not be useful, but it's definitely there in, in relatively large quantities. Also has amino acids. God, you'd be hard pressed to find a plant that didn't have some amino acids and flavonoids. Phytosterol, so sterol is, uh, has a cholesterol ring in there and phyto means plant. So it's a uh, phytosterols and, and they're often very uh, useful in the herb action, the action of herbs. In this case, I don't think the, the two that are, are primarily in there, stigmosterol and beta-cytosterol. Beta-cytosterol is a very useful and um, chemical herbally. I just don't think there's enough of it to be very useful in this particular plant. Also has some fatty acids, uh, aromatic acids, uh, triterpenes and carbohydrates. Triterpenes, again, not... Those can be active ingredients in herbs, but I don't think in this case. So it's just there. And it might play a role. I'm not, not discounting it, but that isn't what has been studied the most. So what has been studied the most are the iridoids. Let's talk about iridoids, and uh, we'll break it down into why this is useful here. Why it's that harpo, harpo, um, harpajo, uh, harpagoside is, is this is what that is. It's an iridoid. And so an iridoid is a large group of monoterpenoids. Terpenoids are the most numerous and structurally diverse natural products. Mono refers to the number, it's mono means one, and it refers to the number of isoprene units. In this case, there is one isoprene 
in this in iridoids in a monoterpenoid. Isoprene is 2-methylbuta-1,3-diene. Also, C, it's um, five atoms of carbon and eight atoms of hydrogen. So it's an interesting little chemical. Iridoids include a six-membered ring with one oxygen atom fused to a cyclopentane ring. So cyclopentane is five carbons in a, in a ring, circular. And we have lots of sugars that have similar sort of uh, setups. Uh, when combined with a sugar, it's called a glycoside. So that is how we get all of these things together. We have an iridoid glycoside. So it's combined with a sugar. An iridoid is all these things together. It has the six-membered ring. It has the isoprene, all these sort of things. So it's a, it's a pretty good-sized little chemical, and it is combined with a sugar, so it is a glycoside. There appears to be very little difference in the active ingredients of H. procumbens and H. Sahari. They are generally used interchangeably. Um, sometimes you'll hear it in the literature that Zahari adulterated procumbens, but really, technically, they're they're considered almost identical. And it, and and when you look at herbs and and herbal products, it it doesn't make a huge difference how much is you know if there's some Zahari in there or not. Um, my, my feeling, and I don't know, just because procumbens, you just hear a lot more about procumbens, that Zahari is maybe not as plentiful, um, but I, am, I have no idea if that's actually true or not. Okay, so that's the contents. Again, there's not a lot to be said about a Harpago side. They think that is the major, uh, you know, one of the biggest um, active ingredients, though there are others that are probably doing that. And the reason why I can say that, that there's others is because there were studies that said when you just looked at a harpagoside, it didn't do much on its own. But when combined with other aspects of the herb, it had lots of activity. So I think this is really one of those herbs where you want a fairly full spectrum extract and not to worry too much about the, act, the singular active ingredient. And uh, while harpagoside has been looked at as, as, as the active ingredient, I wouldn't take anything that was, you know, focused too much on that, standardized on that or what have you. So that's the contents. Let's talk about drug-herb interactions. So devil's claw appears to inhibit P-glycoprotein. And so P-glycoprotein is an interesting protein. We discuss, I discuss it a lot when I talk about drug-herb interactions, especially lately. Um, it, it, it's important for us to know that it inhibits it when we're trying to predict whether or not there could be drug-herb interactions because there are other drugs that can affect P-glycoprotein. Inhibition of P-glycoprotein also prevents a cell from taking a chemical from inside the cell to the outside of the cell. So if you inhibit that, you might actually be helping something like, um, like uh, resistance to a particular chemical. So like antibiotic resistance, uh, it's thought that maybe um, some inhibition of peak glycoprotein can actually help with some of the resistance, especially actually chemotherapy is another big one that they're looking at that about. So it's an interesting thing to look about, but it's more theoretical than anything else, as is um, it does look like it also inhibits cytochrome P452C9, subtype 2C9. And again, I, I talk about this when I talk about drug herb interactions. Again, it's just theoretical. These are things we want to look at when we're trying to predict 
if there could be a drug herb interaction. It does not indicate that there are any drug herb interactions. And the problem with, with Devil's Claw and CYP, cytochrome P452C9, is the studies have only been non-human at this point. So we don't actually know if it has that effect in humans or not. So there are numerous interactions noted, but do not appear to have substantial evidence. These include ticlopidine, um, which is level D evidence, and one case study with warfarin. Because it's a case study, it, it bumps it up a level in evidence. So when I talk about these level of evidence, level C, level D, um, these are based on evidence-based medicine, and A is the highest level of evidence, A, B, C, D. So D is the lowest level of evidence. So to basically what happened is there was one case study with warfarin, level C evidence. So once you have a human involved, it steps up from level D to level C, but it's low level, level C because it's one person. And so that's one issue. So they found one person with, who was taking warfarin that had a reaction with devil's claw. And then because of that, diclopidine is in, it, it, warfarin is anticoagulant, diclopidine is an antiplatelet. They're sort of familiar, but so, similar, but sort of not. But one expert said, well, because it had this, this case study in warfarin, we should be careful about ticlopidine. And so it's just an expert opinion. There's no evidence to support it. Just someone said we should be cautious, and that's why it's level D evidence. Mount Sinai, one of the, the premier hospitals in the United States, has a website, talks, has, has some really good information on Devil's Claw. And they added, um, theoretically, other antiplatelet and anticoagulants, such as aspirin and clopidogrel, um, should not be, uh, there could be a potential drug herb interaction. Because it may lower sugar, it should be used with caution in antidiabetics. And antacids, because it may increase stomach acid. So all of these are actually going to be level D experts or things they had they gave no support for these whatsoever it was just their opinion um, which i don't want to discount because it's hard to do a study on whether or not a drug or interaction occurs because you're creating a study to cause harm which we generally try to avoid no one really wants to be in charge of and so you don't do that so it's hard to know we can't you know, with certainty. So we have to pay at least a little attention with what the experts say. But we also, I think, have to feel like you have to give it uh, a, a, a little bit of a grain of salt because it's just an expert opinion without any evidence to back it up. The American Herbal Products Association rates Devil's Claw as a class A herb when it comes to interactions. And this indicates herbs for which no clinically relevant interactions are expected. So they're not worried about interactions at all at the Herbal American Herbal Products Association. They have a really good book that looks at the safety of all these things. So they're saying it's class A herb, not a lot of concern here. So I'm not particularly concerned about drug herb interactions, but I'm aware I got some some hooks to to kind of keep an eye on in case I wanted to do some some give this herb with someone who's taking drugs. I should clarify pharmaceutical drugs. So what are some concerns about this herb? The American Herbal Products Association rates Devil's Claw as safety class one, its safest class, indicating that it can be safely consumed when used appropriately. There have been some GI complaints and allergic reactions in a small number of study participants. You'd be hard-pressed to find an herb that didn't have those. Those are always of concern. Devil's Claw has been used at smaller doses during pregnancy and postpartum. Again, it is considered to be a, an herb for pregnancy, and so using that is, is good. And, and generally, we're, we're quite cautious about using 
anything around pregnancy and postpartum. So the fact that this has been used relatively extensively and safely is is a, a pretty major, pretty major, cons- a pretty major uh, positive uh, for the CERB. Since GI complaints are a possible adverse reaction to taking the CERB, some experts recommend not using the CERB if there are peptic or duodenal ulcers or gallstones. In fact, I think that was the Commission E, the German Commission E. Um, bottom line is don't use them in those in those cases. Um, again, I I kind of I think of peptic and, and duodenal ulcers as sort of heat in the stomach. So that idea, if it was truly a cooling herb, it might actually be helpful for those. Um, but then again, there's no evidence to really support this. Again, this is just someone saying, hey, let's be a little bit cautious here. And so those are some of the concerns that are in the literature. Okay. So we're not, we're, we're on the last uh, slide here, but we're not quite done. I, I told you that this was one of those herbs that I've been thinking about this herb as I've, I've gone through uh, the preparation of this and, and, and I'm thinking, okay, is this an herb that I want to, that I think is an important herb, a useful herb? Is this an herb that I, I want to incorporate into what I do as a clinician? And I want to say, yes, I, you know, after doing all this and looking at all this, I really think this is a really interesting herb for, as a replacement for non anti-inflammatory drugs. I'm going to get myself a bottle. I'm going to start using this. So when I have a headache or something, I, I might occasionally go for an ibuprofen. Not that I don't think Chinese herbs can help with it. It's just when you're in the middle of a headache, it's like, who wants to deal with it? So I take an ibu. Um, maybe I'll take devil's claw and try that and see if that helps. Um, it appears to have a similar mechanism of action. It appears to be quite safe in, in how we use it. And if I can do this as an alternative to, and a safer alternative to, for my patients with, who are using uh, non anti-inflammatory drugs, this is a fantastic herb to have on hand. So I'm going to start using it for myself and to evaluate it for whether or not I don't like to experiment on my patients. So I want to experiment on myself. So I'm going to use it on myself and see if it's useful. And, and if it is, it really is going to fundamentally change a lot of what I do in my clinic. So I think this is a really interesting herb in that regard. So that's Devil's Claw. Eye opening for me and I hope interesting for you. Thank you very much for, for coming here. Um, just reminder, when you do buy from Amazon, please use the banner ad on our homepage at SpurbsHerbs.com. That will help us pay for our podcast. Appreciate it. You can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at SpurbsHerbs.com or at our website at www.SpurbsHerbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S. Sierra, Papa, Echo, Romeo, Bravo, Sierra, Hotel, Echo, Romeo, Bravo, Sierra.com. So appreciate it, you doing this. Thank you very much. I have a very extensive uh, bibliography, which I'm going to show you in just a minute after I talk about our next episode that we're going to be talking about. Our next scheduled episode is our first Australian Aboriginal herb, Melaleuca kajapudi. We will be exploring this herb as well as the culture it comes from. So that is very interesting. This was a culture that I have strong ties with, having lived and worked with a community for six months during medical school. I was in a really exciting program called the Out of Alice program. And so I I worked in this culture quite a bit. It's going to be a fascinating exploration of an herb and its culture. So please join us on our next episode of Spurbs Herbs, Melaleuca Kajapudi. And as I promised, here is the bibliography. This is page one of the bibliography, quite extensive. And finally, 
page two. Thank you. That concludes. Thank you very much. Do you have any questions? Again, if you're you're with me live, feel free to type them in or to unmute yourself. And if you're not with me live, feel free to send me an email and I'll I'll uh, get back to you. I might not always get back to you super fast. So if I if you don't hear back from me, send me another email. I'll be happy to do it. Happy to answer any questions. So thank you very much. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins, Rogers, Campbell.